Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast where we discover what people with degrees in history actually do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean for History at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I am talking to Sarah English, a graduate student and the Vice President of Public Relations for the Graduate Student Advisory Council at Eastern Illinois University. Sarah has been on a quest to find out what resources and opportunities exist for graduates of master's degree programs in history, and today we're going to talk about what she has found. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Sarah English, and I am a graduate student at Eastern Illinois University in the history program. Okay, and just to provide a little bit of context, uh, Sarah and I came into contact with each other, of all places, in the community discussion board on the American Historical Association's website when Sarah posed a question to the broader historian community about job prospects and career prospects and all that for MA graduate students. And since this podcast is kind of devoted to the idea of what do people actually do with this history degrees, I decided that it would be great to bring Sarah on to talk about uh, her findings, what she has seen, what she has not seen, and just to hopefully spark a conversation about this problem in most graduate history programs. So, uh, Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, and so... Uh, just to start with, on that discussion board that I was talking about, you had mentioned that you had gone to a conference and you had posed some questions to professionals in the field who didn't seem to have satisfactory answers. So can you tell us a little bit about that? So I went to present a paper at the Loyola Graduate Conference for, for history students. I submitted a paper and I was accepted. And so I traveled to Loyola the very first weekend of uh, November and during that conference they had a panel on uh, lunch panel on diversity within the profession and they had four panelists one of them that just happened to be the director of career development and diversity for the AHA and as I listened to the questions being asked I noticed that the questions and the answers were geared toward people with PhDs and I started to become frustrated because I wasn't receiving the information that I had hoped to get. The answers just didn't seem to apply to me. I didn't have any real intentions on going on to get my PhD because I'm a a non-traditional student and I don't necessarily want to teach at a university. And so I decided as I was going along, I started to write some notes. And the question that I posed was, what resources are available for people like me who are only looking to stay with a master's degree? And why are there really no opportunities listed on the AHA website? There's not just job opportunities, but resources. Where are the resources for people who don't intend to get a Ph.D.? They didn't really have an answer for that. And when I I stated the question, so are you, you know, why do I need to get a Ph.D.? Why do I need to, I I don't want to say waste the money, but waste money and time going into, into a curriculum at a program where teaching is part of the curriculum when I have no desire to teach. 
so I also pose the question, if a PhD is considered necessary, because throughout some of the answers had alluded to the fact of whether or not you do want to teach in a university setting, a PhD is needed to, con to be considered credible. And that did not sit well with me at all. Why do I need a PhD just to be considered a credible historian? We have the same skill sets. I know how to research. I know how to write. Obviously, I'm here. <laughs> I'm presenting. So I challenge them, will a PhD be necessary and an MA become obsolete? And they did not have an answer for that. And so it caused a little bit of a stir within the room, I feel. I wasn't trying to start a commotion, but I had questions, and I wanted to be pointed in the right direction. Yeah, that is roughly my experience with it, too. I went for a PhD, well, sorry, let me back up. I went for an MA degree at uh, California State University, Sacramento, mainly because I was just kind of, you know, I was interested. I had time. <laughs> I had just graduated with my <laughs> BA, and I, uh, I liked the subject of history, and so I didn't really approach it with any kind of specific goal in mind um i kind of went into it just because it was something that seemed interesting and you know i'm kind of a nerd and so i just kept going with it but yeah throughout that program i mean it took me i was only part-time so it took me four years to get through the ma program and in, in none of that time did i ever hear any discussion of professionalization or you know what jobs are available to people with ma's the vibe that I had always received is that an MA is for people that are, you know, they're interested in history, but yeah, they're not really going to be professionals in history. There was, uh -huh. the, it, it really felt like the only valid degree for people that are looking for people in history is, is a PhD. And I eventually did right. go on to get a PhD. Again, a lot of mainly just because of self-interest, not necessarily for the careers afterwards. It, it, I didn't think that through real well until partway through my <laughs> PhD program. And I started to think about, oh God, what am I going to actually do with this thing? But, but yeah, that seems to be a fairly common problem. And, and especially, and even among the people I've talked to for this podcast, um, a lot of them have noted that in their graduate school programs, there just has not been much discussion about career options. And people say that things are hopefully changing now because of, you know, the realities of the of the academic job market are that there are no tenure track positions anymore. Or right. the, you know, the five of them that pop up every year get 4,000 applications for each of them. So that's not a viable career path for many people in history even more with PhDs or MAs. And awesome. so it is interesting to hear that people are talking about that now or at least that's the claim is that people are talking about that now but i i kind of imagine that most people are probably in your situation where you know people may talk about it but it's not part of a formal part of the curriculum yet uh -huh. and that might be where we end up having to go with it is there may actually have to be classes on professionalization because yeah you can't rely on professors to pass that stuff along because professors are academics. They're lifelong academics with tenure. And so they don't know uh -huh. <laughs> that stuff. And so I'm thinking that yeah. at some point that might be the way that we have to, that we might have to go with some of these programs. I've been really fortunate in that my professors and my director, my grad director and my chair are always willing to sit down to have you bounce ideas off of them. And they're really inclusive. And I think I, I uh, attribute that to the smaller class sizes. There's typically seven to eight of us in, in a seminar any given evening, but they're always there. And 
our program does try to work on career diversity, and they are including me this year um, within that Career Diversity Day for historians, and I'm going to be presenting a panel on networking. Also, there will be other things about uh, public history, but we're also going to be including uh, the things you can do with a history degree that aren't history-related. Things like you really do, you're really more marketable to the business world because with a history degree, you can show that you have critical thinking skills, you have research skills, you obviously have communication skills, and those are typically more marketable than a business degree overall. And so we're trying to include a real sense of diversity, not just sticking with a historical background. Um, and then going on to a job, you know, within a, the history profession. I've read articles from major corporations. Google's one of the most famous ones where they talk about how much they're looking for people with liberal arts backgrounds instead of coding mm-hmm. backgrounds, for example, because coders, I mean, there's a million coders out there, people that can write code, but there's fewer people that can think through the moral implications of codes and all of that. And so there's been a lot of talk about how liberal arts and humanities and history students can kind of step into that void and kind of help large corporations navigate, you know, the intersection of humanity and technology and, you know, how can they make it more efficient for both, that kind of thing. And so there's been a lot of talk about that among uh, some corporate people and all that. I think the, the issue that we humanities folks tend to run into, though, is that, yes, that makes sense, but a lot of us just don't know how to market ourselves to that type of employer. We don't, I mean, sure, we, critical thinking, historical knowledge, being able to assess primary and secondary sources, I think a lot of us don't really think of those as concrete marketable skills we tend to think uh-huh. of well that's just that's just what we do that's just what historians are and so i think a lot of historians tend to fall back on the idea that well you know i know how to use museums i know how to use archives i know how to use uh-huh. microsoft word and that's the stuff that corporations kind of just nod and say yeah that's nice but no no get to the you know why do i care right <laughs> and yeah, i think that's the stuff that benefit me yeah and so i think that's the stuff that a lot of uh, especially young, uh, students, you know, I don't want to say younger students, maybe inexperienced students, they just don't know what they know. They don't know what the, what is marketable, marketable and what's not. Yeah. And so that I think that's going to be one of the challenges is, on the one hand, universities and, and you need should do a better job at advertising the various career paths that are open to people with history degrees, but they also need to train the students to capitalize on what right. other folks are looking for. And so it's kind of a two, two-way two street there. Well, uh-huh. actually, I guess it's still the university doing both, but still, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> there's a student <laughs> yeah. side to it, and then there's a career side to it, and so I think there's there's work that can be done in all those areas. So you went to this, uh, the the Loyola Conference, and and you kind of raised a stir, so to speak, with the people that were there. (laughs) Uh, What's what's happened since then? You went back to your university, and what have you been up to since then? Well, when I went back to my university, uh, the first thing I did was I went back to my department chair, and I kind of passed along some of the information that I was given. Uh, They did pass out packets on career diversity. And again, it was geared towards people with PhDs. <laughs> and so I, I handed over some of the, the information that I had found and, you know, just discussed with her my frustration and the lack of 
information that was out there, and that's when we began to discuss her bringing me on to the panel for the Career Diversity Day for History uh, to discuss about networking. I've been very clear with most of my professors about my desires to uh, be a, what I would, what I call jokingly, is a professional student. Researching, writing, publishing, just constantly learning. I like to get my hands on any historical journals I can. And so they brought me on to that. We discussed my path for the spring. The spring is my last semester. And they suggested I take the historical publishing class, considering that's one of the routes I want to go. And, and then I think about, oh, I think it was about a week later, I decided to pose the same question on the AHA community's website. And I really did, I got several responses, quite a few, who I connected with, you. And I've also talked to someone who is a historical publisher. She has her own historical uh, publishing company, and I begin to what you would call network. And within listening to the podcast, uh, once I found it, when you suggested it, the one thing that everyone has said is to network, to network within your own university, to network even on any websites you can find. I've joined several groups on Facebook who are either professors at tenure-track universities who are either adjunct professors. Uh, I've even gone through and within doing research papers. If I find someone's dissertation that I've used or someone's article, I've reached out to the author, tried to, you know, say, hey, we have the same interests would it be okay if I added you as a contact? And I've made a couple of uh, Facebook friends that way. It just never hurts to keep people in your back pocket. And while, you know, and develop friendships along the way, because while it may not uh, come to fruition now, say a year later, someone decides I'm working on a project, Sarah would be great for that, or, you know, Jim would be great for that. I remember talking to them about this. Let's see what we can get together. Yeah, and that is a hugely important activity. Uh, networking is hugely important. And I'm glad you picked up on that with earlier episodes because that is a common thread that most people say yeah. is that you want to make contacts with as many people as, as, it, as you can. And I know that from a grad student perspective, and especially an MA grad student, because there is kind of a pecking order there. And it does make yes. sense that a lot of when I was in, when thinking back to when I was an MA grad student, the, the idea that I would reach out to a, to some famous historian that I didn't know was just <laughs> completely terrifying. And I very rarely did it. I wish I did, but I didn't because I was terrified of um, why would this person care what me, some nobody <laughs> in an MA program ha is is talking about. Mm -hmm. The thing that became very clear to me once I went through it and now that I have a, a, a teaching job, we get very excited <laughs> when people express oh, an really? interest in our work. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we talk to, you know, we've got classes full of 30 students and the vast majority of them, some of them are history majors, a lot of them are not. And so uh -huh. the most students in the course don't care one bit about what I have to say. So if somebody uh -huh. comes to me and says, hey, I'm really interested in your work. Can we talk about it? 
I know that I know now that we, you know, professors and academics get really excited about that because, you know, wow, somebody out there cares. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> I spent years working on this book, and yeah, mm-hmm. I got some maybe I got some nice reviews from publishers and from other historians and all that. That's great, yada yada. But here I've got somebody right. who's out of the blue saying, hey, I'm not being paid to say anything, but I like your work, <laughs> and that's right. that's really exciting. And so I yeah. always try to encourage my students to reach out to other academics and professionals and all that it may not pay off in a career or anything like that but you know oh, that right. person might be able to point you to some really cool primary sources that you didn't know about oh, or and that's happened to me yeah that's happened doing I, I just did an article on the american revolution and the disaffected and i did a historiography which i'm semi trained to turn into a research paper but um, I posed on a, a Facebook group, hey, I'm looking for resources. Can you uh, point me in the direction of some books? And here are some of the books that I do have. And lo and behold, one of the authors was in that Facebook group. And I only recognized that as I began to type his name. And, you know, sometimes the name of someone within that group will pop up like you're trying to tag that person. And I thought, no way. <laughs> and so I went and I looked and, yeah, he's in this group. And I, I just, I couldn't believe it. And he responded. And not only did he respond, but he pushed me in the direction of several other sources that he used. Uh, I also had someone who wrote an article in the uh, Journal of American History. Well, unfortunately, my university, the archives only went to 2012, but he sent me a copy of that article. <laughs> And so even within, even for students who are doing research papers, reach out to these people, say, hey, this is what I'm working on. Whether or not it's their genre of history, they can always point you in the direction of someone who may be able to help you. And then you've developed a relationship as you go on to your professional careers, whether that's a PhD, whether that's an MA, you're going to have a relationship and I say the first thing you should do is develop a relationship with your professors. Don't be afraid of your professors. Don't be afraid of your program director or your department chair because they're not there to intimidate. They're there to help. I attribute maybe to my older age. <laughs> Some of these professors I'm older than a little bit, which right. doesn't it makes me feel a smidge awkward, but they never make me feel that way. And I know that I'm building a future. I call it, uh, you know, it's a second chance for me to do what I want, to do what I want to do and to do what will make me happy. So uh, any inhibitions I had went out the window. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, that's good to hear because, yeah, you've, you've got experience and you, you know, you're more mature and so it does make sense that you'd be a bit more comfortable reaching out. I think the message really needs to sink in with, say, you know, a 22-year-old recent graduate yeah. of a BA program who probably never talked to any of his or her professors in the undergrad program, has no idea how to approach professors or whether they even should approach professors. I think those are the folks that definitely need to hear this message is that it's it's okay to talk to your professors, you know, as an undergrad, it's, you know, it's not cool to talk to, your, you know, um, <laughs> it, it's, you know, that high school mentality may carry over. I don't know. 
But you definitely, yeah. if you're going to a, if you're going into a graduate program, you've pretty much decided that your life is going to somehow involve that field, and you mm-hmm. need to make the most of it. You need to talk to yeah. everybody you can talk to. This is going to hopefully be your profession, and so you need to you need to be a professional about it. You need to talk yeah. to people. You need to network, uh, and even beyond just simple networking, it is just kind of an aspect of the profession. This is uh-huh. this these are your co going to be your coworkers someday, uh-huh. hopefully, yeah. assuming everything works hopefully. out. Yeah. Um, hopefully, right? You never know, but you want to you don't want to close any doors or burn any bridges or anything you want to make sure that if you do go on because you never know maybe you will go on to a phd or oh, and, and it's not out of the cards for sure but sure. as of right now i'm trying to concentrate on just passing my comps in april right and i i would like to, to do a phd but again i being an older student i do have children at home who are 12 to 12 year olds two twins <laughs> And um, they kind of need me around. And mm-hmm. within my location, the closest school to me that would have a doctoral program for history is an hour and a half away. And I would have to be willing to and prepared to commute. And I'm just not at that time. I'm not at that point in my life that I feel I could do that. It's not fair. Um, for my family to be gone so much. But I also want to obtain a career in history, if possible, because let's say six years from now, I do decide to go into a PhD program. I don't want to be out of the loop for six years. And while I may go on to a career that has nothing to do with history, it doesn't mean that you can't still research and write and submit articles on on the side per se. You need to have these connections built to keep yourself immersed within the historical community because you never know where that's going to take you later. And I think that brings up another important point also is that your job title doesn't have to have anything to do with history. Right. If you, So if you don't become a full-on historian I always want students to realize that doesn't mean they're a failure. They, mm-hmm. because even if you end up working, you know, you, you graduate with a, a history degree, you end up working for, I don't know, Microsoft or something. Right. If your title doesn't have history, that doesn't, that doesn't mean you're a failure. There's still, there's still ways you can contribute to the, the field of history, even if that's not your full-time job. You can, you can still write articles. You can still, you can still write books. There are lots of, uh, in the field, in the you know, in the in the profession of history, you know, there, there's people called unaffiliated scholars, which are people who are mm-hmm. not, they're not academics. I mean, they're they're academic, but they're not employed by an act by a school, a university, or whatever. Right. But they're still out there doing research. They're still out there publishing books and articles. They're still recognized mm-hmm. as authorities in their field, even yeah. if they're not affiliated with a university or a, an archive or anything like that. It is still possible to participate in and contribute to our collective historical knowledge, even if you're not, uh, even if history doesn't appear on your job title anywhere. And uh-huh. and I, I always tell students that I, I understand that you everybody wants to be a full-time historian somewhere. Uh-huh. It's just, unfortunately, there's a lot more applicants than there are open positions. And so supply right. and demand means that some people aren't going to make it. And yeah. 
in these days of you know lack of tenure track opportunities, that means there's a lot of PhDs out there applying for jobs that used that previously would have gone for MAs. And right. so there's a lot of competition there that didn't exist before. And unfortunately, there will be winners and losers. Being a loser at a job application, though, does not mean that you're a loser overall. It just means you didn't right. get that job. Okay. Uh, but it is move still... Move on to the next one. <laughs> you move on to the next one. That's right. And it's frustrating. I know it's frustrating. I went through a lot of job applications and all that before I found uh, my my current gig. But mm-hmm. and And I count myself fairly lucky that I got one. But there is a lot of people in that situation. And so it's important to remember that you're not a failure if you're not an academic, full-time academic somewhere. You can mm-hmm. still contribute. You can still do important things. You can still do interesting things. A lot of people will do an adjunct teaching position where they'll, you know, you teach one class a term at night or something. Yep. And that's, that's satisfying in its own way. And so right. there's a lot of possibilities open to people, even if they don't have the job title of historian. Right. I was told at the conference to have a a plan B. And another theme that I've noticed throughout the podcasts here, no one has ever said that they're doing the job that they set out to do. Right. They've always ended up in a different direction. They thought they were going to do one thing, but the job they're doing now, they can't imagine not having that job. So you can't pigeonhole yourself. Don't only expect one thing because it definitely, it might not happen. You always have to have an open mind. Exactly. That's And that's something I've noticed in previous interviews also is that, yeah, I mean, and even in my own experience, I never, I my, the position that I have now is more administrative than teaching. And I had never expected to be in that type of a position, but I like it. And it works and, you know, it pays the bills. And so it's that's that's totally correct that very few people end up with what they think they're going to end up with uh, when they're pursuing right. a, a, de- a degree in history. Uh, everybody, not everybody, I guess, but most people, they all think I'm going to become, you know, the the tenured professor who teaches two courses a term and, you know, spends time at the archives and wears the jacket with the leather patches on the elbows <laughs> and all of that. But that doesn't happen. And no, I mean, happen. even the people that get tenured, they don't have that type of life. That's that's a stereotype that just does not have any basis in none reality. Of, none of my professors do. Yeah, exactly. like, I don't know any of my professors that only teach two courses. <laughs> right. It's uh, it's it's true in, you know, the top one percent, you know, the Harvards and all of that. I right, think those yeah. guys teach have that type of life. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of, you know, state schools, liberal arts schools, none of those instruct- professors have that type of life. And I think that's that's a problem also is that a lot of a, a lot of people enter the degree programs with kind of this misconception of what historians do. They right, yeah. you know, they think that we've, you know, we yeah, we've got the elbow patches, we hang out in very posh libraries or posh, you know, studies with other academics and we mm-hmm. trade stories about the Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> but the reality <laughs> is that that's not exact that's not what historians do at all. No. And so it I is think not. That maybe that could be one of the one of the kind of sources of the problem right there is that there's a misconception about what what we're actually doing. And I don't really know how we can fix that since I think that's embedded in people's minds before they even apply to graduate school. But I think that might be part of it, too. Uh, but to, to get back to your experiences here, so you were talking about how you've how you then when you got back after this conference, you talked with your department head and you started working out 
uh, some plans for future projects and all that. So you said that you're gonna you are going to present at this other conference on networking and all that. So what what types of things do you think you're going to be saying in that presentation? I'll be speaking primarily to undergrads, but also graduate students throughout the day as time allows. I'm going to really push push the fact that they need to begin networking now, uh, and and that not being afraid of your professors, not being afraid to reach out to someone whose article you read, even if it's just to let them know, uh, I found your article interesting, this, uh, do you have any information on um, this topic? Like, maybe it's not exactly the same. Your research interests don't totally line up, but you can always ask questions. Never send an email that's closed-ended. Always send a question. Always send an email that requires a response so you can get that rapport built. Um, also, talking about how even as undergrads, be prepared to if they're looking into a graduate program, to start looking into the graduate programs research the, the, the professors to see if there is a specific professor who you would want to work with. You need to begin looking for your mentor and reach out to them. Tell them your plans because, again, they can always help you, and, and that is what I did. I'm also going to be, uh, right now I have in the plans to discuss utilizing social media and whether that be Facebook whether that be Instagram, Twitter, or even message boards, to start posing questions, start reading through. You might find someone that piques your interest on a question that may not necessarily be of interest to you, but you never know who will reply to a specific question within the question that I posed on the AHA website, I not only had you, but Emily Swafford, who is with the American Historical Association, she commented, I've had people who aren't even in a PhD program or who only have a BA who have written books. Uh, James Cortada was one of those people who told me not to pigeonhole myself, <laughs> gave me a whole list of people. So you just never know who you're going to find. Utilizing also, even when you're reading books within your research, pay attention to the footnotes. Pay attention to not just the author of the book you're reading, but who have they used. Read some more material that maybe they've used within their book. Try to reach out to them. Things like that. Thus far, it's still in the early stages, but that's kind of where the presentation will be headed. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds very thorough also. The uh, one thing that you might think about adding is that when you're networking with people, don't get discouraged if some people don't engage. Because right. there's, yes. there are, while I said a few minutes ago that, you know, we're all excited to find out that someone's interested in our work, that was probably a broad overgeneralization. There are some people <laughs> who's, there are some people who just don't care. <laughs> right. 
there are there are some people in the field who are very big names and they can pick and choose who they're going to interact with and so uh-huh. there will be some people just like in any field of human endeavor <laughs> there's always there's always right. some people out there that'll be jerks who won't respond or may just you know dismissively respond or something like that so the the key there is don't get discouraged by that and just keep plugging ahead, find some more other people that you want to get in touch with and follow up with those people that actually will be helpful for you. Right. And also to recognize, too, that especially if it's a professor at another university that they're teaching courses, they get hundreds of emails a day, you know, whether it be from students, outside entities, outside people. You always get uh, other academics you know, academics talking to each other. And so don't take it personally. They could have seriously just overlooked your email. I'm not saying email them again, but, you know, maybe three or four months down the road they'll find it and say, oh, you know, I should have emailed this person back. It it doesn't hurt to pay a compliment, so don't be afraid to, to send it and don't be, like you said, discouraged if you don't get a response. So you've talked about networking. Have you heard any other strategies from anybody else, either through the AHA or anywhere, that you feel might be useful to, mem- to mention to the folks listening in also? Besides networking, to also reach out to your career center. I think most universities do have career centers. And learn to make yourself marketable. That's one of the things that you need to to start learning how to do. No matter what your profession is, whether you're a historian, whether you're in public relations, whether you have a manufacturing degree, a history degree is beneficial in many ways. And so in creating resumes for the future, you'll need to learn that you need to have more than one resume. You can't put all of your skills on one resume and expect an employer to read through it because they're not going to. Learn learn the job you're wanting to shoot for and market yourself towards that position. Now, I'm not don't don't fib on your resume or your CV obviously, but learn what skills you do have and place those on there. You as a a history major, have the ability to think critically. You can put together a story, case, and point of view. You have skills at communicating and writing. You have skills within research. And so this could open you up to positions within corporate sales, politician staff jobs. You could work in uh, state and federal positions. You could do corporate marketing. NPR, advertising, diplomacy, you're not limited. And so learn how to market your skills for these different positions. Yeah, I will second your call to check in with your career center because, like you said, pretty much every university has one. And granted, not all of them are as good as others, but right. uh, that is their, that's their job. That's their point is to... Mm-hmm is to help their graduates find employment because every university, everybody, I mean, people always care about placement rates for student graduates. They want to know, you know, mom and dad, before they send junior off to college, they want to know that this is going to be worth their money or junior's money if junior's paying for it, but whatever. Someone's (laughs) paying for it. And so is it worth it? Because that's a huge chunk of change these days with tuition going up and all that. So that's what universities, real universities 
care a lot <laughs> about placing their students. And so they invest in these career centers to help students do that. And unfortunately, yeah, a lot of students don't either don't realize the career center exists or I think a lot of other, especially in like history, I think students might blow it off thinking, ah, those are just for STEM students or, you know, they don't, they're not going to have anything for history majors. But and who knows, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But it's definitely worth a try because that's right. that's that's their whole reason for being is to help mm-hmm. help you find a job. And even if they can't. Yeah. You know, maybe they don't have any job listings that they can send you to go look at. But again, like you said, they can figure out how to help you market those skills. I mean, these people are professionals in finding jobs. And so they're going to know those types of language you should use on resumes. Like you said, tweak your resume for different types of jobs. Don't submit the same thing to everybody because it's not going to be relevant to some jobs. And so I think that's great advice also is, yes, check with your career center. See what help they can give you along the way. Mm -hmm. And as an undergrad, if you know you're going to be continuing on into graduate school, you want to look for schools that have the opportunity to have you as a graduate assistant. Not all programs have the resources to support graduate assistants. Uh, sometimes they will be able to pay tuition stipends uh, sometime, or tuition waivers. They can give you stipends. But moreover, a graduate, being a graduate assistant, which I'm a graduate assistant, I have the ability to help professors do research help professors plan things like our upcoming career diversity panel. Uh, You're also going to have experience in grading, reading other people's points of view, learning how other students write history, how they interpret history, and also when, when you are a graduate student, start submitting, and even as an undergrad, start submitting your writings to conferences. Uh, You want to get out there because not only will that give you a line on your CV that you will also have the ability to, again, to network. And you'll have that experience under your belt of, of having written a paper that was chosen to be presented at a conference. And so if you have the ability to travel to a conference, start looking. They're there. But typically there are Regional conferences within your area. I go to Eastern Illinois University, which is in Charleston, Illinois, and I went when I went to Loyola, that was about a three-and-a-half-hour train ride. And so that, that was feasible. It was feasible to do. But then, you know, there are also graduate conferences as far as Louisiana. That might be a little harder to do, but, you know, submit your papers. Don't be afraid. They can always give you feedback on what you could do better if you're not chosen. And sometimes your university will have grants that can help you pay to get to these conferences. Right. That's, those are good advice also. The um, look, Yeah, look for resources that your school has to help you p- fund these types of activities. Uh, you're definitely right that you should be looking for graduate assistance opportunities uh, at in, in graduate school. I always tell my students that want to go on to a PhD program, I always tell them don't even bother with schools that don't offer you full tuition waivers and full, you know, graduate assistance. The graduate assistant gig is rarer at 
the MA level. Uh, when I was in my MA program, they didn't even offer any of those, but some some programs have more of those. But definitely, especially at, the, at a PhD level, don't don't even think about going to a school that doesn't offer you a free ride <laughs> because right. that, you're just going to put yourself into a whole lot of debt yeah. for a very uncertain future as we are discussing here. So that's one of the pieces of advice that, that I always give to students also. So I'm glad you brought that up. Do you have any last things that you think people listening might like to hear about? The only other thing that I would say is within in your last semester of your MA program or, you know, even your PhD program, you're going to be extremely busy. I know that I'm already extremely busy and I'm on break for the next three weeks. But I'm getting together, you know, my bibliography, I'm getting together my, I do have, I've created annotated bibliographies. And, and now is another time to reach out to your network that you've built up over, you know, the last two years, three years, however long um, it's taken you to get to this point and start, you know, asking them for help. Maybe not, you know, help as far as advice. Hey, my comprehensives are coming up or I need to defend my dissertation. What advice do you have for me? What do you think, you know, I should do? What direction do you think I should take my study habits? Because typically for me as an MA student, I will be doing my typical GA gig during the week, about 19 hours a week, but also I have a full uh, semester of classes. And so time management skills, ask them for that. They, that's what your network is supposed to be for. And I think those are that's collectively you've got a lot of good advice here for students that are looking to figure out where they want to go, try to figure out what some of their options are. Hopefully, this will lead to successful outcomes at the end of their degrees, whether it's an MA program or even a BA program. I mean, the okay. undergraduate students, I mean, coming out of a BA, you don't necessarily have to even have an MA to get a lot of uh, history-related jobs. Like thinking of specifically at the moment. There's a lot of actual history jobs through the U.S. government. Uh, there's almost yes. every every military unit in the world has a unit historian, and yes. usually all that's required is a BA in history for those for those positions. So there are yeah. lots of opportunities out there, even if you don't go to grad school for a degree, even if, if even right. if you have a BA degree. And so, I hope a lot of these lessons that you've been talking about. A lot, I hope a lot of undergraduate students in the BA programs also internalize some of these because it's mm-hmm. you, it's not something to wait until you're an MA. By that point, maybe it's even too late. <laughs> I think it's be, it would be right. better for students, even you know freshman year of of college, start reaching out to people. You're looking to break into the field, and so it it makes a lot of sense to network and reach out to people that are already in the field to help kind of help you kind of navigate the next few years of your life to make sure that you have the outcome that you want. And so it's just a matter it's, it's being proactive, taking charge of your own career, and working with people that already know what they're doing to become one of those people that know what you're doing. I think that's the yeah. ultimate goal. They really, I've always felt that, and I don't know how it is now, but I was in high school. 24 years ago (laughs) so my senior year I knew that I wanted to study history but my guidance counselor just assumed that I wanted to teach history in high school and so I think the diversity needs to start at a lower level 
um, getting the message out there that there are so many more things that you can do with a degree in history and that you don't just have to teach high school, you don't just have to be a professor at a university, that there are other things you can do and maybe, you know, that would help the profession twofold. You have more historians coming into the profession in order to teach because there's been an influx of people who want to take history courses. It's a systemic problem that goes pretty much yeah. all the way back to grade school that people <laughs> people don't have a really good good sense of what historians do. And I right. think that's something that the profession could get better at advertising. And I think there's a lot of effort to do that. The AHA uh -huh. has you know, they put a lot of resources into trying to research where historians work, what what types of jobs do they have. They, they have these big projects where they're tracking who becomes tenure track, who does not go become tenure track. And so they've, they've put a lot of resources into those types of programs. And so I'm hoping uh -huh. that they will, once they get all of this data, they will then be able to better advertise. And, you know, us individual historians can be better at it, too. But collectively, we all need to better advertise exactly what it is we do. You know, as long as we don't do that, there's going to be this stereotype of us. Part of the stereotype is, you know, academic, egghead, out-of-touch, ivory elites. And when reality is that we have important things to contribute, and that contribution doesn't depend solely on what the job title is, it's more of what you're trained to do, what your what the skills are, and so collectively, what can we add to kind of the the, the broader conversation, even with non-historians. And so I think mm -hmm. I think that's advertising our field better to the general public, because yeah. that will also get us in a foot in the door at places like Google and all of that. If they have if their HR people have a better sense of okay, this is what historians do, and this is why it makes right. sense for us to hire them. So yeah. there's a lot of things that a lot of people can do. <laughs> to make it better. And so I think it's good that we're having conversations like this to kind of get the yep. ball rolling. Mm -hmm. You and I can't solve everything, unfortunately, here in this <laughs> <No>. <laughs> half hour or so of talking, but at no, least but you know, we got the ball rolling. That's right. We got the ball rolling. We're talking about it. We've t And you've come up, you've identified some really good starting points for what individual historians can do to help themselves when they finish the networking and all of that. That's that's a good part of it. And then the rest of it is just going to be a better, you know, marketing of the field to everybody else also. And hopefully mm -hmm. that will come in time. Right. Okay. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And thank you all for joining us today. There is a bit of an epilogue to this story. The response to that American Historical Association discussion board that Sarah and I mentioned a couple of times earlier was so strong that the AHA decided to create a new discussion community dedicated to the MA in history. In that new community, Sarah and others have discussed topics like creating a CV, creating a resume, deciding when to use a CV versus a resume, self-marketing, personal branding, diversity, social media, and even a few teaching positions. I will post a link to that in the notes for this episode. Now, you'll, you'll need a AHA membership to get to it, but if you're listening to this podcast, you really should have a membership to the AHA already. Anyway, if you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at filibusterhist. For Sarah English and the absent James Fennessy, I am Rob Denning. Bye!